Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-426 of the Run Run Live podcast. Here we are celebrating a leap year in February. That means you and I get an extra day to do all the things we love. Good stuff, right? And today we have a good show for you. I corralled one of my local ultra running friends, Steve, to give me some coaching on running the rim to rim in the Grand Canyon. And coincidentally, if you want some more around the history of running the Grand Canyon, you can go check out a series that Davy Crockett just did on the Ultra Running History Podcast. It's all about the Grand Canyon and the rim-to-rim-to-rim runners over the last hundred years. Davy does a good job. He's a uh, ultra runner from, I think he's from Utah. I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time in 2015, and I was so impressed that I returned in 2016 and ran down to Phantom Ranch and back, back up from the South Rim with my daughter, and you may remember that episode, and I'm planning on going back in September of this year and doing a two-day rim-to-rim-to-rim, meaning we're going to start on the south side, we're going to run south to north on day one, stay over on the north side, and then come back on day two. And if that sounds like fun to you, you're more than welcome to join. I mean, you'll have to manage your own logistics. Effort-wise, it's probably the equivalent of a hilly 50K. I mean, that's what I guess. Unless the weather goes sideways or something weird happens, it's not too bad. In section one, we will try to answer the question of at what age... Do the wheels fall off your athletic pursuits? And in section two, we'll talk about sticks. Yeah, sticks. I was going to say wood, but it's more sticks. On the topic of aging, there are a number of people trying to figure out why we all can't live to be 150 or 200 years old. And of course, There probably have always been these people, but the modern ones are trying to leverage that science. You know, these Silicon Valley folks. And I was listening to one of these guys, a Harvard professor, and it turns out they're they're very big on cold therapy, i.e. plunging yourself into cold water as a way to shock your body into a positive stress response, meaning these things that stress us shake our genomes out of their comfortable slumber and get them awake and cracking, pushing out good, youthful stuff that makes us stronger. And you laughed at me with my ice baths. Huh? Huh? I was ahead of the curve. Since we last talked, I have transitioned into some more intense race-specific training for Boston, the Boston Marathon. Last weekend, Coach started me on some hill repeats, and I was pretty darn proud of myself getting up that Friday morning with the sunrise and the 10-degree weather and just knocking those bad boys out because the sun is coming up early enough now to run in the morning. So it comes up around 6.30, but you can get out about 6 You because you get the sun glow before the sunrise. And this is another one of those old guy tricks since we're talking about age today. 
Instead of doing speed work on the track, you do tempo on the hill. And it has the same positive effect on your foot speed, your turnover, your form, your strength, without as much pounding. So you sort of bring the speed work to you. And then last Sunday, I did a 2-hour and 30-minute run with surges and a fast finish. What did I end up getting? Like, Oh, 17 even, 17 even. I got to the end, and I looked, and I was like uh, two-tenths of a mile away from 17 miles. And I did that thing where I was like, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to get 17. So tomorrow I'll do 2 hours and 45 minutes and this will get me close to uh, 30k probably, so 18.6 miles. And that's well into the volume of, you know, mid 40s of miles per week. So that's a good, you know, we're starting to get into the meat of it. I still get out with Ollie the Collie in the woods for some of my midweek runs and he's still a maniac. He has, he's constantly coming up with new ways to annoy me and to cram as much play into the run as possible. That's his priority, as much play as possible. So he has added to his annoying habit of lying in wait on the trail and pouncing on me. He likes to choose good ground to do this from, like when I'm struggling up a muddy knoll or trying to navigate a slippery rock bridge over a stream, he'll lie in wait in a crouch, and he'll spring at me. And if I'm not paying attention, I may receive essentially a 45-pound punch to the family jewels mid-stride. But his new trick is right after this assault, he'll look around for the nearest stick to grab and run with it, growling. And it's hilarious. The challenge with this is sometimes he grabs small sticks, And sometimes he grabs six-foot-long branches or logs. And then he runs in and around me with this payload, joyously growling and swinging his bit of tree. And try as I may, inevitably, he trips me, and I get familiar with the frozen or the muddy ground. One time, last week, he literally stuck a branch between my legs as I was running. Like... When the Italian rider sticks the rod into the spokes of Dave's bike in the movie Breaking Away. Oh, well, yeah, curveball. What am I talking about? Well, it's this coming-of-age movie from 1979 about a towny kid in Indiana who dreams of riding with the Europeans. It has a great supporting cast with a young Dennis Quaid and Daniel Stern from the Home Alone franchise, and the best use of Rossini's Barber of Seville ever in a movie. (laughs) In this pivotal scene, he's riding with his heroes, the Italian team, and they're mean to him, eventually sticking something in his spokes and crashing his bike. It's a great movie. Go watch it. That's what Ollie tried to do to me, but it didn't work. My legs were tougher than the stick. He's a pain, but... Only because he has so much love, so much joie de vivre. I'm I'm okay with that, because if you're going to live, live with zest. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. So what is the truth about running into aging? And it turns out it's highly personal. And I've been thinking a lot recently about just how aging affects athletic performance. I've seen a number of moons set myself and like to have a strategy or at least a rough outline of one for the future. I wouldn't say I've been researching exactly, just sort of paying attention to the experience of others, listening. Listening's good. What I've found is it really depends on the individual, their history, their genetics. Just like everything else in our lives, it comes down to an experiment of one. That being said, if you aggregate enough data in the form of experience, you can see some patterns. An example, I belong to a Facebook group called Runners Over 50. And someone in there posted a question, something like, do you feel like the wheels fall off after a certain age? And there was a long string of answers, probably 80, 100, whatever it's up to now. Some were in the, yes, definitely, after pick an age, things begin to unravel. 
a definite feeling of there being an expiration date after which you were pretty much spent. Many others were in the, no way, I'm in better shape now at pick an age than I was when I was 40 or 30 or some other age. And these tended to be the people who had started running later in life, so stick a pin in that and we'll come back to it. I use the generic phrase there, pick an age, because this is one of those things that is a curve and turns out to be very specific to the person. You know, that point of view. Some said 50 was their expiration date. Some said 60. Some said 70. Some denied any hint or whiff of age-related degradation at all. So it seems age and the effect of it on your athletic performance is highly individual in nature and dependent on your point of view. There seem to be some categories, again, pattern matching, There are those that were highly competitive lifetime runners and highly competitive when they were younger. And this cadre typically either burns out, gets some sort of career-ending injury, or stays competitive as they slowly fight a retrograde action against the entropy of time. For those that stay in the fight they learn how to do more with less, or probably more more appropriately, how to do less with less and be happy about it. For this crew, it's just a matter of perspective. Do you walk around sad because your last race was two minutes slower than your PR in your youth? No. The successful find a way to be happy with the relative performance and personal accomplishment. Another advantage in the lifelong competitive runners uh, category that they have is that since they were relatively fast in their day, the loss of performance leaves them still relatively fast in their golden years, relative being the operate word here. They don't fall off the bottom, so to speak. They fall back to the middle, which is still a great community and a place to be. Then there's this category of athletes I'm noticing who discover their athleticism or return to it later in life. And these folks seem to be comparatively quite satisfied with themselves. Out of this category comes the standouts who are setting those age group records. And they have the advantage of not having abused their bodies for 30 years and are, in their age, fresh to the competition. Then there are those who were never really were athletes and emerged from a comparatively unhealthy existence. And these are the ones that happily shout, I'm in better shape today than I was when I was 30. And they have no expectations or memories of fast times and are just thrilled not to be dead or in a wheelchair. And they're living the dream. So the answer to the question, at what age do you lose your ability, is what then? Well, in some regards, it appears it's up to you. You get to define what ability is. I mean, I'm 57. I just ran an easy six-mile trail run with my dog as part of my training for my 21st Boston Marathon. It was easy for me. It was enjoyable. It was also two or more minutes per mile slower than I would have run 15 years ago? Does that really matter? Nope. Doesn't change the experience for me at all. For many 20 or 30 or 40 year olds, this sort of mild Saturday outing would be athletically out of reach. Does that really matter? Nope. It's all about your life, your choices, your point of view. And at the end of the day, actually at the end of many, many, many days, you get to decide whether to worry about what you can or can't do or celebrate what you can do. And that hasn't changed since you were 18. Hopefully you're smarter now. Athletic ability falls off as you age. How much and when is a function of your genes and your lifestyle? What you do with it is a function of your mindset. You can change your approaches and your tactics and your strategies to get more out of what you have, but 
entropy doesn't stop for the universe, so it's not going to stop for you. Eventually, we all return to the stardust from which our corporeal form emerged. And that's the answer to that question. And now for today's featured interview. Hello, Steve. How are you? Hello, Chris. I'm doing fine. So when you uh, tell the good people who you are and what you do and uh, why we're talking. Oh, my name is uh, Steve Perro and I'm 68 years old, retired mechanical designer. Started running back in the mid 70s. And so I guess I've been running for about 43 years. Somewhere around 1990-ish, I decided to get into trail running and then ultra running. And here I am today, still still ultra running. I don't know yeah. if you want any more detail than that. but No, it's amazing the kind of events and miles you're putting in still. That's great. Gives me hope. I believe that you just keep moving and, and don't stop and you'll be fine. Well, that's the secret to ultra running right there. It, it really is. So I wanted to get you on. We were trading Facebooks and emails and stuff about your experience running the Grand Canyon because I have yes. run the Grand Canyon. I've done an in and out on Bright, Bright Angel, done, but I'm organizing sure. a rim to rim to rim with a stay over. Right. Okay. So give you're me going, your- You're going north to south. These are all the questions I have, right? So give me a brief overview of the three trips you've done. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Back in 2011, I think it was. Let me think about that. Yeah, 2011. My wife and I, we were living in New Mexico at the time, and we decided to do our first Rim to Rim to Rim as our anniversary present. It was our 10th anniversary. And so we just drove <laughs> over and with a friend, we drove over there and just went and did it. and. It was wonderful. I mean, it was that was the first time's always the best, right? Right, but you guys uh, running did, down that. You guys did the full rim to rim to rim, which is yeah. You started south side and then went north and then came back to south. Is that what you did? That's what we did. And, and the first time we did it, we went down South Kaibab to North Kaibab and back up South Kaibab, which is about forty two miles. And right. weather was good. It was hot, always hot there. I don't know how it is in the winter, but we did this in October, which is the preferred time to do it, you either go in the spring or you go in the fall, but don't try right. to go in the summer. Right, because down and, in the canyon, um, the canyon's built like an oven. It's got bare rocks, yes. so it basically yes. it's built like a convection oven. And, exactly. and so when you get down the bottom in the summer, it's 150 degrees. Yep, and the canyon walls just reflect the sunshine and the heat off of them, and it can be brutal. So we avoided that, and it turned out to be a pretty good trip for us. And you saw all the photos I sent you. Yeah, so that was, you said, about 44 miles? I think that one's 42. I'm not quite sure the exact mileage. I think it's 42 if you do South Kaibab to North Kaibab to South Kaibab. If you do Bright Angel to North Kaibab back to Bright Angel, I think that's like 46. Yeah, it's a little bit longer because you have to run along uh, like six miles along the floor of the canyon, but along the river. Yeah, and the the, um, Bright Angel Trail, I think, is a little longer also. But And then... uh, yeah, I believe it is. It's a little longer going down. Comes, so kind of comes down at an angle. Looking at it, though, Bright Angel, the trailhead sits at about 6,000 and change. And it looks like North Kaibab, the trailhead sits at about 8,000. Well, then maybe, maybe I'm wrong there. So it, it could, maybe it is just like, maybe it is like you said, you just run further along the river down the bottom. Yeah, it's about a, I don't know what, 10K down. And that drops you about a mile in that 10K, and K along the river and about 10K out the other side with another 6,000, 8,000 feet of gain. And you did that twice. Right. How long did it take you on all these for the well, full? Well, the first time we did it, and our 10th anniversary, we did it in 14 hours, almost 14 hours exactly. Right. That's and quick. we were trying, we were, yeah, that was, that was a good time. I mean, that, you know my history. We've been at Hard Rock and we, we've done Hard Rock a ton of times and Wasatch and the Bear. And so we've been travel all over the country doing 100 mile races. So we're pretty strong. Not anymore, but we were. So 14 hours and we were trying to get finished by light and we just, just barely didn't make it. We got to the top just as it got dark and we needed our lights. And um, the second time, I don't remember what year it was, maybe, maybe 2016. We did it with a big group. We did it with my wife's brother and two friends of ours. And that sort of slowed us down a little bit. But I think we went back up with Bright Angel, if I remember right. And that took us 16 yeah. plus hours. Yeah. And these were all experienced salsa runners. I mean, these, these were all good. They can run a lot. And, yeah. and then the third time, 
Good time was the most interesting because that was last spring and we had a group invite us, a group of ultra runners again, that all they wanted to do was hike it. And we said, well, that sounds good because my wife had had a, a, a total knee replacement several years ago and um, it went well. I mean, it took us about 24, 25 hours, somewhere in that range and just hiking it. And the worst part was going back up South Coast. So we went down Bright Angel over to the other side and up. South Kaibab. And we decided to do that just to try to stay around 24 hours. And uh, the only issue we had with that was when we were going up, we were having trouble staying awake at the very end. And we kept sitting and falling asleep. And yeah. But other than that, it was a great time. Yeah. I mean, you're an experienced ultra runner. You kind of, the real hard rock is a pretty, pretty challenging race, a lot of elevated gain, single path, that kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, what would you put uh, rim to rim? I would probably put it somewhere around uh, maybe six or seven. Yeah. And the bottom is easy. Once you get down the bottom, it's beautiful running. You're just running flat along the river. It's hot. There's plenty of water, but the climbs on either side can get you. And the first climb, so when you get down the bottom, run along the river, and you start climbing up the other side, it's not that bad because it's your first time. Right. Run back down, run across, and you go back up, and it is tough. Your legs are done, they're cooked, they're fried, and you still have to climb up that. And then it's steep, switchbacks, but it's yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did it, like I said, I did it with my daughter a couple of years ago. We just did it down and out on Bright Angel. And that's where- so you that's, had a taste. Yeah, that's where I lost her was that last- kilometer of switchbacks up yep. bright angel where it's like 18 percent. oh she yeah was, she was doing a lot of resting there she was talking to god there but just rolling off a marathon i mean i hadn't trained for any ultra or anything sort of being a month out of uh, the bus marathon i felt it was really yeah. easy like super easy yeah and you were aerobically fit yep. because you were trained for boston and right so i guess my point is yeah. it's hard and you get in trouble you definitely got to watch the weather but it's not that hard. Nope. It, it, you know, if you can hike, it, it's doable. Yeah, as long as you can keep moving. So the other thing that yeah. I'm discovering is there's really nothing on the north side of the canyon in terms of civilization. Everything's on the south side. Right. And in the times that we've always done it, the north side has been closed. So you could not even bail on your run at the time if you had a problem, right. other than maybe calling an Uber or a taxi or something like that. But that we, everything was always closed the times we did it, but that was to avoid the heat. Right. And the, everything closes on North Rim at, uh, in October. And by everything, I mean the two lodges are there. The park exactly. has two lodges, Kaibab lodges. Um, but on the south yeah, side, I mean, they have like a, a little city. Yeah. Oh, the, the south side's fantastic. I mean, when you finish, you have beer, pizza, whatever you want, and they're open real late. So you can uh, crawl in there and get some food and go shower for us and then go get some food and beer. And it is like a city and a bunch of hotels. And So I haven't been on that North Kaibab Trail. I went as far as Phantom Ranch. What's that trail right. like? From the pictures, it looks like there's actually some, some forested. Yeah, well, as you get closer to the top, you're actually on a, a trail that's in the forest. And actually, when you reach that spot, you're very close to the top, maybe half mile to go. To the top. Okay, well, and you can see the rim up there. Okay, so and it also looked like there were you were following some sort of creek. There were a bunch of small bridges. Oh yeah, and that, that's the and I forget the name of that that creek or river that's down there that you're running along. Once you leave the Colorado River, which is more down by Phantom Ranch. Yeah, and I couldn't tell you the name of that creek, but right, it's you not right almost the whole way. Yeah, it's not Bright Angel because that, that goes on the other side. Yeah, we took spots like uh, when we did the hike in April, last April, we actually went down to that creek and took a dip, rinsed, washed our faces off. And so there's places where you can do that. And there's, there's, But there's plenty of water. There's a lot of good water down there. I mean, water is piping out of the spring that you don't need to filter or anything. Right. And that's what I realized too, because when I did the down and out, I brought a full water pack because I heard about yep. the temperatures in there. I was like, here I am rolling out of a New England winter. I'm <laughs> going to need, need a lot of water. I had two bottles and a full pack and I never, yep. never, never even opened the pack. I didn't need any and of that stuff. Did you uh, enjoy the lemonade at Phantom Ranch? Of course. Yeah. You get around there, you got to send yeah, a couple of postcards and yeah. The best part is that lemonade. I mean, especially when you come back from the second trip. Oh, it <laughs> yep. is great. You can have lunch down and there. And I think it's, yeah, it's like uh, a couple of bucks for a glass of lemonade, but then you can get a refill for half that price. Just keep filling your glass. Until well, you, you know, enough. yeah, what makes it taste good is the fact that you hiked out there to get it, right? And you're sort of in exactly. this other world yeah. place. Yeah. yeah. And another thing you like about the north side is 
Uh, you probably saw in my images the narrow trail with the drop-off on the left side, and sometimes the right side after you've crossed across. But really, you've got what maybe I would say three feet wide, and you've got a cliff wall on one side and a drop, sheer drop on the other side, right down. Yeah, you don't want to be great. doing that at night. Probably not. But we have in races, the certain the races at Hard Rock and stuff like that. We go along very similar type trails at night and you just don't run. You walk. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the trail, the side I was on is the heavily traveled side. So it's basically a six foot wide freeway going down Bright Angel. It's there's that no, other side. Yeah. Yeah. The only technical part is it's at 18 degrees. Right. So, so that's the other question I had to, it looks like it gets a little bit more dicey on the north side. It, yeah, it does, but it's enjoyable dicey. It's right. just the views are incredible and uh, you're going to love it. So, no. so you're going to go across and stay. So you're going to leave the north rim, go over to the south side and stay in a hotel or something. And then the next well, day go back. Well, actually, I think we got a cancellation at the North Kaibab Lodge. So what we were going to do is run over from the south, right? And yep. stay on the north, which is what I wanted it, but the lodge would, and uh, then run back. And I'm going to do it like towards the end of September, which is yep. a great time to do this weather-wise, but it's also a great time to go to any of our national parks because all the kids are back in school and the weather isn't hairy yet, right? So That's true. Yeah. Yeah. All the tourists are out because you had the same experience, I'm sure, when you're doing the rim to rim to rim, when you come upon some pack of tourists and they treat you like you're an alien of sort, right? Yeah, they do. And a lot of people recognized us as rim to rim to rimmers and, and a lot of them cheered us on, way to go. You know, they're just yelling, good job. And yep. we didn't think much of it. It was just to us, it was, it was like a long training run. Yeah. Yeah. As you get um, back to the top at uh, Bright Angel, if you're coming in during daylight hours, there's a hundred or more people in that last little like half K. You know, yeah, right. Coming down with cameras. And, uh, yep. You got to sort of elbow and, and, your way through. And you run, when you come down and you leave uh, South, South Kaibab, when you're running down the trail, all different speeds of runners are running the they're doing the rim to rim to rim. And if some people are passing you or you're up catching up to people and there are a lot of runners there on the good weather time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like a race. Yeah. We're always coming up on somebody. Yeah. That's cool. So where'd you stay when you were out there? Oh, we stayed on one of those. Well, the first time we did it, we camped. There's a campground right near the, and then we had a hike to the start of the trail and that worked out really good. And then that's two times after that, we stayed actually in a hotel room. No, actually, Last year, we camped. So the, the, the middle two times, the first time we camped, last time we camped, the middle time we stayed in a hotel room. Yeah. Because yeah, we had a big, big group. Yeah. And it's not that far from civilization, the South. Oh, no. And and uh, the last year, the good thing was, so we went to do the trail and it was on Easter Sunday when we uh, the next morning. And we went to an Easter sunrise service right on the shelf. Oh, cool. Watching the sun come up. And then oh, after cool. that, uh, the other thing my wife wanted to do, she plays the uh, fiddle. So we had to go to the rim edge, find a nice quiet spot. And she just stood up there and uh, played Amazing Grace on her fiddle. Oh, that must have been haunting for people. It was. Well, there was nobody around. We went and found a nice secret little spot where no one could see us. Because it was early in the morning and it was I think it was like 20 degrees out. It was freezing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. People always talk about how hot it is down at the bottom, but it's <laughs> it gets cold up on the rib because you're at 6,000 feet. Oh, oh yeah. Right? It could be yeah, snowing. Yeah, and the time of year you're there. Yeah, yeah. it could be. And and I've had friends that have done this where they had a tromp through the snow to get down, and they get down and it's all nice and warm running, and then they had a tromp through the snow to get back to the top. Right, and that gets dicey because it's just like the trails around here where you and I live. When you get the snow and people walk on it, it turns into ice. Turns and into ice. You really don't want to be skating around on the ice uh, with a 3,000-foot drop-off. Nope, not, not without traction. But you talk about that that sunrise service. I mean, that's probably one of the closest things to a religious um, epiphany I've had as well as being at a race. Sun's coming up and you're getting ready to go and somebody's singing the national anthem. It's uh, Oh, yeah. It, it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it. Yep. And while we were at that service, they waited and the sun came up behind, I guess it was the North Rim. So the sun rose up and then service was over. Pretty cool. Yeah. That was like the highlight of our weekend. So what would be your um, cautions or recommendations? What would be your top three gotchas? Well, definitely bring plenty of water, even though you can refuel down there. What if you get somewhere and the water's not open? Yeah. And you have to go a little further, right? And, and you know, you're a runner, bring calories and avoid the heat. 
and pace yourself if it's a hot day, which it's going to be. You're going to do it in September, you said? It can be hot. It's not outrageously hot, though. It might be, might be 90, might be 80 or 90, right, in the canyon? 80, 90, or maybe even hotter. You never know. Yeah. But we did that last year. We were, let's see, that was, oh, that was April. So it was kind of cool. It was cold up at the top and then the bottom. When I we did it in October, it was hot. Yeah, when I did it in um, May, like May 15th, I did it somewhere around there. Yep. And it was maybe 85, but it was comfortable, right? Yeah, Un- unless you come from New England when <laughs> it's still winter in May. <laughs> we went there last year from Texas, so we were acclimated. And before that was New Mexico. So what else so do you want? Likely won't what else you, I said, what else uh, would you watch out for? I mean, just besides your standard ultra running stuff. Well, uh, watch a step because you're running along little narrow trails almost the whole way. And if you trip and fall, you could, I mean, if you, when you're down below, if you tripped and fell and rolled off the trail, you'd end up in the, in the very fast moving creek or river, whatever you want to call it. But when you climb up the North Rim, or more likely when you're running back down the North Rim, if you trip, you're dead. I mean, there's just no way. It's just a little narrow shelf trail with a big drop, and there were boulders everywhere. So well, a lot of that we just walked. Yeah. You might have seen some of my videos I was jogging down, but we didn't do too much of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You keep one hand on the wall. Yep. Yep, I so hear you. That would be about it. And then the next thing would be try to get back before the restaurant closes. <laughs> 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 he turned yeah, but, yeah, but if you just do it the one way, it can't take more than nine hours, even if you're fast hiking. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So I think that's what it yeah, took us true. is like nine hours. Yep. We weren't burning it up. But, but you again, you're a fit athlete. Yeah, well, you run down and you hike up. It's Yep. But, but it, like the average person, it might take them a long time and they could uh, not make it. Yeah. So true. I don't, I don't think they recommend people. To, they, they really don't want us doing even a rim to rim, they just don't want us doing that. The park service. And yeah, I know. Yeah, you see the signs yep. on the way down, or they go, "You should turn around here." Yeah, yeah, right. But it's it's the whole thing. I mean, you've done the the, the south side, running across that expansion bridge, and it's just yep. fantastic. Just oh, awesome. it's gorgeous, amazing, it's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, all right. Well, thanks for your insights. You're racing this weekend, huh? I am. I have a 71 mile race down in the Massanutten Mountains of Virginia. It's a badass race. And I'm not racing, but there are some guys up front that will be running 13, 14, 15 hours. And I'll be somewhere in more like 24 hours. I did it three years ago and it took me 25 hours. And there was one year my wife and I went down and did it. This is called the reverse ring. And my wife and I went down one year and there was so much snow, they had to stop the race at 40 miles. So is it any further. take so long because you're in like the Smokies or something? Is it the... Just the trails, trails and north of the north of the Smokies. It's very gnarly, very bouldery, rocky. If you were to just Google the ring, you would see course map and you'd see it's pretty tough. So there's a race called the Massanutten 100, which Deb and I are going down to do in May. This is the Massanutten 100 without all the aid stations. So you stay, you get your head go up in the rim, and then the rim is shaped like a big ellipse, and you just run this ring, and they hike the aid stations up to you. So there's not much stuff. And then, so the 100 mile, what that makes the difference between the 71 miler and the 100 miler is every five or six, uh, eight miles, you run down the rim, off the rim to a road, get your aid, and then you got to hike back up. Oh, okay. So we skip all those downs and ups and just stay up on the rim. Yeah. And these mountains aren't super tall. So you're probably at like what, 4,500, 5,000? Yeah. Yeah. They're not that high. Most of them probably averages two, 3,000. Yeah. But it's the uh, Pointless up and downs and it's very rocky, bouldery, rocky. Yeah. You just can't move. You can, yeah, there's no, there's not very little running. Right. And you get some of those pancake rocks, right? The uh, sort of pizza box shaped rocks that are super slippery. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, if we don't have snow at all, which we don't down there, the leaves are like a foot deep <laughs> and you hit one of those pancake type rocks that are at an angle Right. Buried in leaves, and you touch that, and you're going down. Yeah, and uh, that's happened yeah. to me a number of times. You just step on that rock and on oak leaves, and you're down and you're laying on your side. Yep. Before you even know it, yeah, you're in the Before ditch. You even know it. So the, Our- the interesting thing is that so there's, there's 37 of us that are doing this, and seven 
are over six. How is that for a statistic? Yeah, well, I was and I was, one guy. I was reading an article guy over today. 70. Yeah, I was reading an article today. Some lady over eighty is going to do a hundred, do a six day race here because she That's, set the record yeah, at seventy nine last year. Maybe you get another ten years in you, Steve. I'm not planning on stopping. I'm going to keep going. I figure I'm going to keep going until till the cutoffs hit, and then when the cutoffs hit, you start doing those track things where you run yeah, around exactly. the track. Exactly, run around, around the circles. Yeah, just run around circles for 24, 48, 72 hours, whatever. I'm going to keep <laughs> going. I mean, my, my days of running sub-250 Bostons are over, but I yeah. can do these things. Yeah, no shit. Uh, that's hard. All right. Well, thanks for talking. I appreciate the advice and the uh, information, all right? Well, uh, You're welcome, Chris. You have good luck with your race. Keep at it. Thank you very Peace. much. Be safe. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. All right. Cheers. Yep. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Pile O Sticks on Consistency in Action. What if you did one small thing consistently? What would you have a pile of at the end of the season? Living in New England, living in New England, we like to have a wood fire in our houses in the winter. And this year I haven't been able to have a fire because the chimney inspector found some cracks but I still have a pile of wood neatly stacked in my backyard. It's a long tradition. It's part of my DNA, part of the cycle and rhythm of life for hominids living and surviving in cold climates. For millions of years, since the discovery of fire, we have been collecting and storing wood against the coming cold. I don't know why, but I get a supreme sense of satisfaction looking at a well-cut, well-stacked cord or two of wood in my backyard. I enjoy the practical art of gathering, cutting, and splitting those worthy New England hardwoods. Part of this secret inherited knowledge is which woods are best for the fire and which are not. At the risk of starting to sing Monty Python's Lumberjack song, my favorites are the oak, the ash, the sweet-smelling wild cherry trees. But I'm not picky. I'll take what I can find in the hardwood category. But I am a connoisseur of the finer species. When you put a weighty chunk of well-dried red oak on the fire, it fairly glows with splendid warmth. In the spring, you gather the wood. Maybe you cut down some trees. Maybe you find some uniquely fallen trees to scavenge, provided by the winter storms. Thusly, participating kindly in the cycle of life. With axe and machete and chainsaw, you reduce the trees to movable lengths and logs. You trim the small branches for kindling and pile the brush for compost. You drag and carry and flip with great sweating heaves the large logs. You stack them and begin the drying process because among the secrets passed down is that dry wood burns hotter, safer, and more easily. Then over the course of many long summer evenings or Saturday afternoons, the chainsaw sings and the logs are reduced to fireplace lengths. The maul, wedge, and hammer follow quickly with that satisfying heft, strike, and split that reduces the lengths to firewood. With any luck, the splitting and stacking is complete by summer's end so that the last warm, dry days of August and September can work their magic on the drying firewood. And once that wood is stacked and covered, it's left to rest like a harvest of new wine, a testament to man's synchronicity with the seasonal cycles. Which is a long way of saying I'm always on the lookout for wood to gather for my hoard. This year, in a spell of temporary insanity, my wife and I got a new puppy. 
Ollie is a border collie, and he's the love of our life, but he is also very high energy and needs to get outside every day for some sort of exercise. I've taken to walking him in the woods behind my house. It's just about a mile loop through the forest. A few times a week, I'll take him for a walk to let him burn off some energy. I suppose it's good for me as well, although I do not lack for exercise. Back in October, one of my neighbors and his dog were attacked by a rabid coyote on this same loop, steps from my house. I took to picking up a stout branch to have as a defensive cudgel cum walking stick at the beginning of our walks. Now our woods are filled with down branches and other flotsam with the winter storms. Then... Each time, as Ollie and I returned up the driveway, I'd toss the stick by my woodpile. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. And yes, I am just starting to get to my point, 659 words in. Fast forward to today, four months later, I have accumulated a rather large pile of sticks. I would estimate my pile of sticks is close to an eighth of a cord of hardwood. Let's say, yeah, ten fires in the fireplace? If you look beyond the symbiotic accumulation of BTUs, this large pile of sticks is a great visual reminder to the simple power of consistency. My coach is always preaching. That's a secret to success is not your effort. It's not your volume. It's not striving. It's consistency. If you stick to your plan, if you simply show up every day and do the workout, over time, you will accumulate your own metaphorical pile of sticks. The smart people who I try very hard to pay attention to are always telling me the same simple truth that while people wildly overestimate what they can do in hours or days, they wildly underestimate how much they can accomplish with consistent action over months and years. Put the sticks aside for a second and think in terms of your health, your mind, your relationships. What is the equivalent of picking up a single stick? Maybe it's reading for 20 minutes. Maybe it's writing for 20 minutes. Maybe it's loving for 20 minutes. What could you accomplish in a season of small, consistent actions? I mean, what? In 20 minutes, you can probably read 20 pages. If you do that three times a week, that's over 3,000 pages a year, which is a laudable 16 or so books. In 20 minutes, you can write Meh, 500 words? Guess what? At the end of a year, that's an 80,000-page book. I think you get my point. What makes it difficult is the point of view or the frame of reference. When you wake up today, you are stressed and loaded and behind. You look at that book or that blank page and you roll your eyes. Your monkey mind won't let you be kind to yourself, even in these small, stick-sized ways. So start today. Be kind to yourself. Set that bar low. Pick one thing. Do it three times a week. Give it to yourself as a gift with no expectations. Start your pile of sticks. Who knows, maybe in a few months you can be basking in the warm glow of a fire. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, we have run down into the canyon of our youth and up the other side of our age and wisdom to the happy Elysian fields of episode 4-426, the Run Run Loop podcast. Like I said in the intro, I'm starting to get serious, semi-serious, in my training for Boston, as serious as I ever get anymore. (laughs) I'm not racing for a time, but I am training as if, because it is Boston after all, and the Boston Marathon deserves respect. Thank you all, my friends, who have contributed to my Zero for Prostate Cancer campaign for my Boston. I'm getting close to my goal, and you, yes you, can push me through the finish. 
Links in the show notes. You can find. If you really want to, you can find them. Also, big thanks to the small and dedicated circle of Run Run Live sponsors who pay our bills by subscribing to something. You know, I don't work real hard at this. And I asked them, I called them up and I sent them emails. And I said, hey, this is great. What can I do to thank you? And they simply tell me, keep doing the podcast. So with the bar set at this achievable level, onwards we strive. I'm staying healthy for the most part. My weight is still a couple of pounds over race weight, but it's starting to drop with a slight tweak in my diet and the bigger mileage weeks. It will all come together. It always does. Of course, my Achilles, my plantar fasciitis, that chronic tendonitis in my butt all speak up once in a while, chirp, 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 but it's just the cost of doing business. I keep the fires tamped down with judicious rehab and sensible training. And I'm starting to travel more with the new job, which is good news for you. There's nothing that feeds my creativity more than being trapped in an airplane for four or five hours. Also gives me more exposure to the carnival of weirdness that is our modern world. And that produces uh, good stories. So I rented the movie Midway last week, and it is very good. If you're a history buff and like war movies, which is a nice way of saying your wife won't watch it with you. But it's a story that's been told before. This time, with modern special effects, they can put you right in the pilot seat of that Dauntless Dive Bomber. It's really good. And who do you think plays Admiral Halsey? That's right, a much older Dennis Quaid. See? Remember? It all ties together. See, that's a callback. And... Also, as a side note, I found the first episode of American Gods was available to watch for free. So if you love that Neil Gaiman novel, that's worth a watch. So I'm going to put my shoes with the chewed off laces on and go throw Ollie in the truck and drive over to get a haircut and do some grocery shopping now. But while I was writing this, I forgot to latch the door to the master bedroom and the two-tone terror stole my Patriots hat and chewed a hole in it. Think that's a bad omen for Brady and Belichick? Don't know. And this just in. I received the results from my DNA kit that the kids got me for Christmas. And I have to tell you, it was a bit disappointing. Not a drop of Ashkenazi, Sicilian, or Moorish blood. That's it, no gypsy. Just your run-of-the-mill Scotch-Irish with a handful of Norman and a small dash of continental French from my Quebecois grandmom. Celtic through and through, which explains why good beer is like heroin for me and my love of stone walls and roaring fires, I suppose. And I suppose that's where I get my endurance, right? My folk were chased out of Africa and didn't stop running till they hit the North Atlantic, and then sat around in pubs complaining about it. So thank you all for your friendship and your time. Hope you got your money's worth. Got a long run in the morning, and then I'm off to Dallas for a couple days. Keep fighting the good fight, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And the music continues with... Track number four from Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the Nays. This is called BJ's Prophecy. Enjoy. Sad, you're 